You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Don't ever let someone else's opinion of you become your opinion of yourself. I never get tired of saying that quote from one of the greatest motivational speakers of all time, Mr. Les Brown. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. This podcast is sponsored by Audible. They're offering you, the listeners of this show, a downloadable free audiobook of your choice, and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and choose the book that you want. I'm really enjoying the comments and suggestions that I'm getting from you, the listeners. Keep them coming. The more you let me know what you prefer, what you enjoy the most, what you get the most value from, the more I can give it to you. I will certainly continue with interviews and definitely with one-word stories I'm also going to be offering you a series of short episodes specifically on the craft, the art, the skill of storytelling, how you can become a better storyteller, communicator, presenter. Send your comments to my personal email, loseclub at gmail.com, L-O-U-S, C-L-U-B at gmail.com. As a person who repeatedly listens to Change Your Story, Change Your Life, you're obviously getting some value from it. One of the ways that you can help more people discover the show is to visit iTunes and leave a brief review and a star rating. Your review can be simply the biggest takeaway that you've gotten from one of the episodes. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already done so. That way, you will never miss a single episode. I thank you for listening and for supporting the show. Today's guest and the life that he's lived, the life he's living, embody the quote that I opened with by Les Brown. This is who he is today. One of America's leading mental health speakers and high-energy corporate drumming event facilitators. He's written a book, Transforming Stigma, How to Become a Mental Wellness Superhero. He's an award-winning public speaker. He has starred in important documentary films about mental health, His views on the subject have been featured on ABC, NBC, and CBS News. 
His TEDx talk, Mental Illness is an Asset, has been presented in the many college classrooms where it always inspires the people who hear it. That's who he is today. But to become that person, he had to dramatically change his story and change his life. If you're looking for inspiration and hope, you'll get that from Mike Vini. Mike, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you for having me, Lewis. And uh, thank you for that introduction, by the way, that might have been the best introduction ever. So <laughs> I wish you could introduce every podcast, interview, and event that I do. Uh, well, we could talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I take it that you're familiar with Les Brown. I am familiar with Les Brown, and he, you know, it's funny, I, I, the last time I listened to Les Brown, I think it was on cassette tape, remember mm. those? And um, yeah, very, very great motivational speaker who has empowered so many people to move past personal barriers, which is important in life. Well, he certainly has conquered some amazing obstacles. He's also one of the funniest men I've ever met. I mean, I remember once at an event uh, where I was surprised to see him in the audience, not on stage. He was there taking notes as a student. And I went up to him. I said, hey, Les, man, great to see you. And he gives me that big smile. He goes, great to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> and one of, his, one of his favorite expressions is, any day that you don't wake up and any day that you wake up and there ain't a chalk line to, around your body is a good day. <laughs> That's a yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's start with you. Where were you born? Where was I born? You want to know my whole life story and I will give it to you. <laughs> I was born in 1979 in Hempstead, New York, which is on the south shore of Long Island. So I'm a native New Yorker, even though um, I'm, I'm in Queens now, living in Queens, which is part of New York City. It's one of the boroughs, but it's still on Long Island. So uh, I don't know if the real hardcore New York City people consider me from New York or not, but um, that's, that's where I was born and raised. Cool. And who would you say influenced you the most when you were a child? Oh, Wow. That's a great question. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say just the first thing that came to mind was a man named Chet DeBeau, who was my drum teacher uh, starting in high school. And one of the reasons he influenced me was the first time I was really exposed to like a personal coaching relationship where someone works with you to empower you uh, to get to the next level. And I never had someone. Have, have a combination of both believing in me and challenging me at the same time to a higher standard. And that really changed uh, the direction of my life in so many ways. Wow, that's fabulous. By the way, drumming, I'm just curious, uh, who is your favorite drummer? Oh, man, we should do a whole show on this. Uh-huh. Oh, man, okay. So, you know, I, it's funny. My favorite drummer, it, it varies, actually. It, it varies because my whole thing is I... A lot of drummers think of just the drumming, but I can't think of drumming without thinking about the entire music uh -huh. uh, going on. So, you know, lately I've been listening to, I, I just love funk. I love James Brown. I love a, a New Orleans funk band called The Meters. Um, I just, I love stuff with a solid groove that just feels good. It makes me want to bop my head. And, 
as New Yorkers, we can say this, you know, it's like there's something about even New York City that, that you get that in the music. It's just great music that makes you pop your head. That's great, man. Uh, do you like jazz? I do like jazz. What about Max Roach? Max Roach was a great jazz drummer. You know, it's funny. He, he was on the mellower side compared to more like a Buddy Rich or a, a Tony Williams who was a little more in your face. Like, a, like, like, a, like Wait a minute. Seen Max Roach, Max Roach, Mellow? I don't know, my man. we got to talk later. Some of his albums, I've seen him live, and it's, yeah. it defies belief to watch his hands move. Uh, but hey, see, we didn't intend, we didn't know we were going to be talking about jazz. <laughs> but before, before we get back off of this detour, you're talking to a man who met John Coltrane. Oh, wow. Okay. So we'll I have of, nothing to say there. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about it later. So, uh, what was your childhood like, my friend? <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> It was interesting. I mean, that's all of us, right? It's interesting. The, 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 the main reason we're talking today is my, my childhood was um, full of struggles with my mental health. And when I say the term mental health, I'm talking about three things, your thoughts, feelings, and behavior. If one of those is having a challenge, you've got a mental health challenge. And for me, it started with behavior problems. I was out of control back in second grade, first grade, second grade, and my parents put me in a private school where <clears throat> within a month I was expelled, and um, then in a public school where my uncle was the principal, and within a month I was expelled. And basically throughout school I was expelled from three schools throughout my childhood for behavior problems. I was hospitalized in a mental hospital three times. I had several suicide attempts. Lots of self-harm, and uh, hate to admit it, but I was, I was violent at home. And so in many ways, I was the poster child for an at-risk youth. And I came from a wonderful home where my parents just wanted the best for us and sacrificed so much. And my brother was just doing just fine. You know, Jason, my brother, is, just felt like, you know, he, he's got a totally normal life. And I was just constantly struggling emotionally um, and with my behavior to keep it all together. You know, it fascinates me when you say... You were a behavior problem in school. Can you describe some of the behavior? Oh, the fun stuff. Um, well, let's put it like this. Um, in Catholic school in the fourth grade, my teacher, her name was Sister Pat, um, told me to wipe the smile off my face because I tend to smile a lot. And um, I said the thing you should not say to your fourth grade teacher. I said no. And think about what happens when you do that in class. Everybody goes, ooh, like something's going to go down. And then she approached me and started yelling at me and talking down to me. And I, I got angry and I said some things back to her that I shall not repeat on your show. And then she tried to grab my arm and pull me out of my desk to take me out of the class to the principal's office. And I punched her as hard as I could. Mm. And so that was an example. That was like just the start of it. I mean, we're talking about desks being thrown and stuff like that. I was just really out of control um, in terms of, I guess, physical dis dis disruption and, and just violent behavior that is inappropriate that you, you know, don't want uh, people being around. And so I get why they had to discipline me, you know, and I knew that it was wrong, um, but still acted out anyway. So that that's some of the mm. small examples of what I did. I want to play the devil's advocate for a second. Go for it. I agree, you know, uh, not the best choice to punch a teacher or none, but, <laughs> but when you began to describe the situation, 
You're a child who's smiling. You've got this authoritarian adult that says, wipe the smile off your face. There's something intrinsically wrong with that to begin with. So, you know, when they say, this is fascinating to me because, you see, people get labeled and you were labeled, but were you really mentally ill? Uh, maybe not. I mean, you, you you were definitely a kid with very strong feelings and you were not censoring yourself or inhibiting yourself. The reason I'm passionate about this, for a short while I taught in a South Bronx. Uh, it was a very tough environment and they gave me a class of kids who were very hard to handle. And one of them was this young Puerto Rican girl named, I remember her, Vivian Rivera. And Vivian had these impulses. I remember one day this very cute young boy, uh, Domingo Torres, I don't know what he said, but she turned around, hauled off and smacked him. No, she punched him. And then she, she jumped on him and she was pummeling him into the ground. And I remember, of course, I had to stop the fight. But I bring it up because whenever I spoke to Vivian, what I saw was a frightened, angry kid who was extremely smart. Mm. Uh, You know, I never saw her as some sick kid. She was a really smart kid. And, you know, there were things that triggered her. So things were triggered. This is just fascinating stuff about labels. Anyway, okay, so you were put into a mental hospital and... Wow. How long were you there? Well, the first time was um, the summer between fourth grade and fifth grade, so nine years old, basically. And uh, I I was there for three weeks, and I, I, I learned what I love to say is the secret of getting discharged. Um, the secret is you have to convince them that you have coping skills, and that's what I did. And then after that, in fifth grade, um, I mean, I, I was – not really admitted, but I had to go in because I attempted to die by suicide at age 10. I was so done with life. Um, and one thing I remind people is when it comes to things like depression, it becomes so overwhelming and so intense that all you just want is a solution from the pain. And that's what I wanted. And I just wanted the pain to go away. And so I tried to do what I thought was needed um, uh, for that. Um, after that, in, in the seventh grade, I was in, uh, basically in there for about six months. And then later on in 10th grade, I was there for about a month. And so I, in between all those times, I was constantly in the emergency room off and on for different crises. Which which hospital did, did they put you in? Was it Bellevue? No. So, um, well, the first one was Nassau County Medical Center, it was called in Long Island, but now it's called Nassau University Medical Center. And uh, by the way, just just a side note, I mean, every time I pass that hospital, Lewis, I, I, I you know, the, 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 this this anxiety comes up, these these feelings of, of being locked in, in mm-hmm. locked up in a place like that. It, it's very intense, very intense for me. And so, um, and even recently, I had to go see a friend in a mental hospital. She's not doing too well, and that was hard. It triggers a lot. But also, I was put in um, in seventh grade, the six month one. 
South Oaks, which on Long Island is like considered the country club of mental hospitals. This is uh, it was a real nice hospital, actually. It's almost like a like a like a Hampton Inn or something. The way it was laid out. So um, that, they they had a they had a weight room, Lewis. They had a they had a workout room and a trainer. So like, <laughs> that was my experience there. Well, you know what it fascinates me about people who don't fit into school because. They're learning a lot about that, and sometimes it's because the school environment is really not conducive to their growth, and they rebel against it. You know, it's not, all, It's not like I said, with, with this kid who was considered, she had been labeled, and I kept looking at her and saying, this is one of the brightest kids I've ever met. She's just terrified, and she's really angry. You know, so what what was your darkest moment? You know, my darkest moment, to, to be honest with you, was about two years ago. Um, and, I, you know, let me say this for the record for your listeners out there. Um, and thank you for your listeners, to your listeners, for, for listening to this. This is a very important topic. I still struggle with mental health challenges. Um, in fact, in a lot of ways, they're sometimes more intense than when I was a child. And I just had a breakdown that was going on for, I'd say, about, you know, six months where I was just in a bad place. And um, and it was really hard. It was really hard uh, because I got to a point where I didn't know who I was. I mean, I know I knew who I was. Like if the police asked me, who are you? I could give my identification. I knew my life story, but I, I felt like I was just in a different body. It was so bad. And that was a that was a scary place to be in. Um, and it was just really, it just kept, I felt like it kept spiraling down and getting worse and worse. So that, that might've been the darkest moment in my life. Oh, wow. Now let's jump back to when you were a kid and you were basically, you were struggling and being labeled constantly, you know, as the misfit in a way, was there an event that pointed you toward hope and success that began uh, it's putting you on this trajectory toward the man you are now. Yes. Um, playing drums. Um, dr- drumming was the thing, you know, that made me holding sticks for the first time. It's funny, as we're talking about this, I want to, uh, to your listeners, I'm actually in a hotel room night right now in Missouri, and I want to go grab my sticks and just start tapping. But I'm not going to do that because we, we, we got to talk here. <laughs> but um, I, I, I'll never forget holding those drumsticks and just how good it felt. And I never felt a feeling like that in my life. And nobody nor myself, you know, picked up that the drumming was really good for me and good for my behavior problems. And it wasn't until I was um, at the end of my 10th grade year, I had been expelled from three schools and, you know, hospitalized three times at that point and um, several suicide attempts and self-harm and all that stuff. And my parents found me a performing arts high school, um, which is the Long Island High School for the Arts, similar to uh, the LaGuardia High School for the Arts in New York City, which for those of you listening is the movie featured on, uh, the the school featured on the movie Fame. And um, that changed my life. It changed my life because something about playing music just calmed me down, centered me, and it was just, that was my element. And so that, that was a real turning point for me that I will never forget. Wow. The music and the drumming centered you. That's that's really powerful. Yeah. When you attempted to kill yourself, what? How did you do it? 
Great question. Now, it's funny. This is a lot of controversy. Well, there's a lot of controversy around a question like this because people say, well, why why would you give that kind of description? Because that, that just, you know, puts it in people's minds. And to also some of you listening who maybe have been through this, it might be triggering. So I just want to warn um, people. But basically, I um, attempted to overdose on my medication, mm. um, intentionally overdose, and, and, and that was it. And, uh, you, you know, I'm really glad you asked that because one of the things that's happening in the world right now with suicide is as we are trying to combat this epidemic, the mental health community is constantly debating over how to message things and how to ask questions like this. So it's an interesting time. So I'm actually really glad that you asked that question. I'm okay sharing it and I share about it in my book, but, um, yeah, that's what happened. And my mom found me and rushed me to the hospital to get my stomach pumped. And, uh, fortunately they saved my life. But at the time I was angry at her because I just, you know, I wanted to be done. And um, that, that goes back to, you know, sometimes people ask me, why do people attempt to die by suicide? I can only speak for myself. But what I've learned from myself, and I guess talking to others who are survivors, is we want a solution. We just want a solution. And mental health challenges can be so overwhelming and confusing, you know. I was uh, speaking at a high school today, and, and something I even share, I think, in my TEDx talk is I was at the gym several years ago, and I was doing this push-up routine where you put your hands in different positions as you're doing push-ups. And I was trying to impress this girl in the gym. And I ended up um, hurting my wrist. And I quickly played it off, left the gym, and you know went home to ice it. And I knew it was either a sprain, a muscle strain, or a broken wrist. It's pretty simple. After two days, if it's not better, call the doctor. Depression, anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, all those other mental health challenges, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, they don't work like that. You end up discovering that there's a problem through behavior, and it's usually someone else discovering it for you. And um, so for me, you know, that that's what happened with, with my suicide attempt, and I just uh, hope I never get to a place again where uh, I just want to end it all. You know, you, you keep reminding me of uh, Gabor Mate. You're familiar with his work? No. Oh, man. Look him up. He he's a internationally renowned expert on addiction and and his point of view is that we shouldn't be asking why the addiction because he says the addiction is a solution to a pain. The question should be why the pain. Mhm. Um and um uh, it's you know it's 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 it just it resonates with me when you talk about this. So, when and how did you choose the life calling that you have? Because you know you're on a a good path and you've been on it for a while. That, that's a great question. I, I I guess it chose me. Um, you know, sometimes in life we have things we want to do, we dream about doing. Um, I, I you know, if you asked me ten years ago, I just I just wanted to be a drummer in New York City bars. That that was my big vision. That's still my big dream is, is to do that. And and, I, and whatever I can, I enjoy it. But basically, my, uh, my career began in 2011 when I was having a breakdown in New York City. I was, um, I like to describe it for people as I was, quote unquote, that person on the streets, the person who was screaming and talking to themselves and just, just in a bad place. And um, the police had to 
keep coming to my home because I kept just disappearing for long periods of time. And, and I was just in a bad place, agitated, lashing out at people verbally and um, angry and depressed, self-harming. And I reached out to a friend who I knew worked in mental health. And I, I say friend loosely because we kind of knew each other. And I knew she worked in mental health. And I called her up and I said, hey, Cheryl, this is Mike Feeney. I, I need help. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm in a bad place. And she responded by, not, not the way I wanted her to, she said, Mike, Vini, what's up? How are you? And I'm like, it's not that kind of conversation. I'm really in a bad place. And I can't even, can't even imitate how intense it was because I'm just not there. And basically, it ended with, um, instead of offering me a, a lead to a therapist or clinic or something, she basically said, can I hire you to be a speaker at my mental health event? And I was very resistant to that. I was like, I don't want to be a mental health speaker at your event. And I you know, almost thought it was below me or something, you know, and I thought about it after. I said, why don't I just do this? Why don't I just go speak about it? And I figured if I put the date on the calendar, I'm a big believer in keeping my commitments. It would it would prevent me from hopefully attempting to die by suicide. And, you know, I, I did the event and um, all I remember was crying, just crying my eyes out. And people loved it. I got a standing ovation and I'm like what world am I in now? And within a year, basically I was a mental health speaker around the country doing events. And I realized for me that sometimes in life, the gifts you have aren't what you always think of as gifts. And it was at one point I realized that one of my gifts is my mental health challenges and my speaking. I'm able to speak very articulately. So maybe putting those together might help someone who's going through the pain that I go through. And it really helped me because the pain of depression and anxiety and anger is so intense with me. I don't want anyone else to go through this. So to all your listeners out there, I don't want any of them to go through this because it's so intense. And, you know, that really started it, the surrendering to helping others. And then what happened at some point is they learned that I was a drummer and they started asking me to bring my drums to events. And I thought that was weird. Like, why do you want me to bring drums? And this evolved into the other side of my career, which is I do corporate drumming events for team building. So I, I actually say they're very related because um, mental health challenges and people challenges go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And the drumming allows me to look at the people issues because to create a, a drum circle and make that groove, especially with people who don't play music, um, it, it really takes people skills. It really takes listening. It really takes surrendering. It really takes looking at where your ego is at in a situation. And so I really um, value that, and that's why I do both. That's fabulous. When you do the drumming uh, workshops, uh, do does everybody have some kind of drum? Yes, they do. Um, I always compare it to kindergarten before adults, where it's like everyone's sitting in a circle, and I hand out you know, an instrument for all of them or tell them to come to the box and pick their instrument. And they think in their minds, they're just going to get to jam and be silly. But really what I do is have games that I've designed to intentionally work on leadership skills. And the great thing is a lot of the games are just so silly, involve a lot of laughter, no matter what. And they're just having fun thinking they're getting to relax. But then if a group comes together I have to sit and ask them, well, why did that groove come together? Or if it falls apart, why did it fall apart? And it forces teammates, employees to articulate in the moment 
why something fell apart and really take responsibility. And it really puts everyone under the microscope together because they're all looking at each other in a circle. So that's that's basically what goes on with my drumming events. That's, that's powerful stuff, man. It's, yeah. See, you're essentially an extremely creative person. Yes, <laughs> that's that is me. Well, there it is. You know, you're you're creative, and uh, creativity is is a gift. But you know, it's it's like a wild horse. And when you were younger, that wild horse wasn't tame. No, <laughs> you know, and so you were constantly losing the reins. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree, and actually, I've I've said this to many audiences that. When I give an intense presentation that uh, seems to really um, captivate the audience and, and they're very happy with it, the same energy I put into that presentation is the same energy I used to put into throwing desks. So it's your, you're absolutely right that, that I had some maybe misdirected energy when, when I was younger and um, maybe had we found a different path or a different paradigm, which is basically what you were saying, um, things might have been different. You gave me to think about uh, creatives like Bob Dylan, who all his life, I mean, he made his career out of being an outsider. And mm -hmm. one of his great lines is, if my thought dreams could be seen, they'd probably put my head in a guillotine. <laughs> That's in one of his songs, man. It's a famous one. Yes, indeed. So... Let's talk about what is this stigma around mental health. Basically, uh, according to Webster's Dictionary, stigma is a mark of shame. And stigma has three components, in my opinion. Like the definition of mental health, it has the components of thoughts, feelings, and behavior. Thoughts are stereotypes. Someone might have a stereotype of what a person with mental health challenges looks like. Uh, feelings are prejudice. Somebody might get uncomfortable when a person with mental health challenges is in the vicinity. And behavior is discrimination. Uh, the department doesn't want uh, this person to work there anymore because, you know, they don't want someone with mental health issues in the workplace. And what happens when people experience stigma, it's a very subjective thing, by the way, it, it's different for everyone, is they don't get the help that they need. So that employee who's struggling privately doesn't want to say anything uh, to human resources about getting help, even if it is there, because he or she doesn't want to get stigmatized. They know that by putting it out there, word might get around that they're struggling with mental health challenges, they might get fired. Um, in my particular case, uh, the stigma affected me with not wanting to get help because I didn't want to be less of a person. I saw people with mental health challenges as, you know, less than people in some sense because they... We're struggling to just enjoy life and do basic things and just exist in the world. And I've learned that that's not true. That was a misguided uh, myth that I had in my head. But all these things affect um, people getting help that they need. And ultimately what I'm trying to do is create a way uh, for people to have a new paradigm around mental health so more people can get the help that they need in this world. That's it. Mm -hmm. And... Why does the stigma exist? You know, that's subject to a lot of debate, but I'm, I'm going to just say a, a few things on that. W one thing is 
bias in general, we're biased by nature and we have to be. Meaning, if you get to the end of the block, you need to have a bias of whether to go right or left if you want to get home. You know, that, that that's a, a, a very important part of survival for us. And sometimes that bias just goes into racism and things like that. But one of the reasons for stigma, in my opinion, is what I call the law of the tribe. The law of the tribe, basically, in my opinion, is that we are tribal people by nature. And you can see this all the time. We function in groups. And I always say, if you look at kindergartners socializing, you can see it. The way kindergartners socialize is by learning who is not in the group. And they call the person not in the group the weird one. Case in point, if there were four of us right now sitting in kindergarten and three of you had Nike sneakers on, but I had Reeboks, you would call me the weird one. And we learn to point out the weird one so we can learn that we are either in the group or if we are the weird one, we're not in the group. And we bring this with us throughout life at a subconscious level. And at the same time, groups are important. We need to be part of groups and, and we're tribal people by nature. The other reason the stigma exists, in my opinion, is what I said to you before, mental health challenges are confusing and frustrating. Let's face it, as humans, we don't like to be confused. We don't like to be confused at all. Uh, case in point, when, and I hate to just say it like this, but school shootings are just a regular thing that we hear about now. I hate that it's like that, but it's what it is. And when someone does or commits that horrendous act, people ask, well, why? why? Why does this happen? And when there's no answer, people get really frustrated. You know, so we, we as humans don't like to be confused and don't like to be frustrated. And so that in and of itself, plus the law of the tribe, in my opinion, puts this whole stigma of, of mental health in place. I love that because I agree that uh, we we need to label things because when we do that, it makes us feel safe. It makes us feel it's an illusion, but we feel ah, we now can control this because we know what it is. If we yes. don't, if we don't have a name for it, then it's the unknown, and we're terrified of that. Yes. And I think it's a way of trying to convince ourselves that we can establish order, so we create these labels. It's, there's all sorts of labels like that. Um, it's not just mental health. I mean, we stigmatize people in many, many ways just to keep ourselves feeling, ah, we've got a handle on it. Exactly. You know, um, I know that who I am and I'm not that, you know. <laughs> you know well, even, even down to judgment calls, I mean, look, I was in the Bronx uh, several years ago, and you know, I'm, I'm going down this one street, and I had a funny feeling, a funny feeling that I was just in, in an unsafe area. I, I don't really know what gave me that feeling. Maybe somehow I, I judged the appearance of the people there. Again, I'm not, I'm not sure, but you know, it really is known as an unsafe area, and I, I felt unsafe. So, so I was you know, bias was coming out right there because that's survival, you know? So when people, people don't understand that sometimes when they, you know, say that people are so judgmental, well, we, we're all judgmental. We have to be. And the key is, I think, being aware that we are judgmental. So especially with racism, sometimes, you know, racism is so subtle. People don't realize that they're uh, uh, being racist. And one of the reasons is we're not in a culture that 
really focuses on being aware of our biases. And I think if we were, we would be much more um, understanding and empathetic towards others. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Spike's film, uh, Black Klansman? That is on my list. Oh, man. It's a must. I think it's the best thing he's done. Wow. Yeah, and what's going to blow your mind? There's an actor in it who plays one of the scariest of the clan members, one of the most violent, and he is not even an American. The guy is from Helsinki, Finland. Oh, wow. Yeah, Spike Lee said that when he auditioned him, he didn't know. And he watched the guy audition, and he said, I was convinced he was from Hang'em High, Georgia. (laughs) And I said, where are you from? He goes, Helsinki. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah, his name is... That's a good actor. Oh, man, yeah, his name is Jasper Parkonen. It's an amazing performance. It's a very scary performance. Um, Did you already cover with the three... Uh, you were talking about the three aspects of stigma. Is that what you call the stigma cycle? Oh, great question. So in my book, Transforming Stigma, um, I actually have learned that for me and for some others, that stigma is a cycle that starts with shame. So it starts with shame, and then it leads to silence. So for example, you're struggling with a mental health challenge, you feel shame. Because you feel shame, you go to silence. You don't talk about it. And the silence leads to sabotage, social injustice, self-destructive behavior, and suicide. And let me just say that again. Stigma starts with shame. Shame leads to silence. Silence leads to sabotage, social injustice, self-destructive behavior, and suicide. And I truly believe, and again, this is my opinion, that this cycle affects people who are struggling with mental health challenges and their loved ones. So it's, it's, it's not just a static thing. And it just keeps going and going and going. And one of the things I talk about in my book, the, the, the real core of it is breaking that cycle. Mm, I love it. Yeah. How can a person become a mental health superhero? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to go out and get your green mental health cape. Now, um, I have one my, of those. You do? Okay, good. You're, you're halfway there. <laughs> You know, in my book, Transforming Stigma, How to Become a Mental Wellness Superhero, it's, it's you know, it, it's, a, it's a great, great term because I think ultimately, what is a mental wellness superhero? I mean, that depends on who you ask. But it puts a positive twist on something that has said, had such a negative connotation throughout history, mental wellness superhero. And so one of the things that I uh, encourage people who want to become superheroes to do is practice self-care. When you practice self-care, you transform shame. That's how you transform the shame in the stigma cycle. Number two is to practice conversation, learning how to have mental health conversations in a normal voice. Like you and I are sitting here, we're having a wonderful conversation, and thank you again for having me on your show. And we we are talking about it in a normal voice. I mean, we could be talking about music, we could talk about politics, whatever. We're talking about mental health in a normal tone of voice. And we need to normalize this conversation. People talk about it so many times with a whisper. And that's part of the problem. We need to just normalize that conversation. And that's on everybody. It's not on society. It's on each of us. And so when you do that, you transform the silence. 
So to transform shame, self-care, to transform the silence, conversation, and to transform the ultimate one, the sabotage, social injustice, self-destructive behavior, and suicide, is we got to focus on really being intentional about connecting with others. That's something that's just really missing in this world. And connecting with others is so many things. It's, it's about boundaries. It's about learning how to nurture healthy relationships. It's learning how to be a fierce advocate for your cause. It's learning just so many things, sharing your own story with others. Because, you know, I always remind people when you share your story, if you give people facts, like if I was on your show today and um, giving people facts, like one in five people struggle with mental health challenges. Yeah, I, I could do that. But when you share a story, it touches the heart. When you share facts, it touches the brain. And that's why we're on, I know, your show here. <laughs> It'd be a totally different name if we were sharing facts. So the thing is, I encourage people to do that, to transform sabotage, social injustice, self-destructive behavior, and suicide through connecting. I love it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm writing about story now, and one of the things I do early on in the book is talk about that, the science of it. You know, facts will talk to the the brain, the data part of the human being, but they do not touch the emotions. Mm-hmm. And the story will touch the emotions, and you've got to touch the emotions to connect. So that's yes. that's that's really really powerful stuff. Wonderful. I wonder how did you discover these empowering steps to overcome the stigma? <coughs> I um, let's go back to 2011. I wanted to die. I was struggling with my mental health challenges. I called my friend Cheryl, who I dedicated my book to, and we've become really good friends. She's been a great uh, mentor and friend in my life. Um, and I, I, I basically spoke at Cheryl's event. I put it on the calendar, like I said. She wanted me to be a speaker. But in between that time from that phone call and, and that event, I still had to get some kind of help. And so... I needed to look for a therapist and I was doing all this research online to figure out how do I help these, the, these issues that are just out of control and overwhelming in my brain and, 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 and I can't even focus or get through the day or deal with people. So I basically went online and looked up everything I could. I started reading different books and I said, look, I got to come up with something so I can survive each day so I can get through the day and, and not have a meltdown every few hours. And so Basically, I was sitting in a coffee shop and, and, and started thinking about everything that I've learned. And I kind of wrote those three points down to myself, you know, that, that I need to practice self-care. I need to do that. What is self-care, Mike? And I, I said, you keep reading about it. You got to do that. Okay, conversation. They say you need to talk about it. What does that mean? And I had to really think about that. And then I thought about those other things, the sabotage, social injustice, self-destructive behavior, and suicide, which basically... <laughs> I knew those well. And, and I said, we need to connect with people at a whole new level if I'm going to have a chance at a better life here. And so basically, those three points were written as my plan when I didn't have a therapist yet and just needed help for my challenges. So it was like literally my little survival thing. I think I wrote it on a napkin. So that's how I came up with it. I love it because uh, it really speaks to this, the truth that the answers that we seek are very often 
in ourselves. I agree. They're there. I mean, other people and events can, you know, be a a trigger or a, a conduit to help us find them, but they're inside of us, you know? Yes. And that's, uh, that's and, and you found it. That That's fantastic. Thank you. Now, listen, do, do you invest in formal personal training? Uh, I mean, personal, deve- no, personal development training, I mean. Yes, I do. I'm a big believer in that. And uh, I actually, something I've never really shared on a podcast is I have a growth plan. And it's something that I think people should consider in their lives, having a growth plan. And, and let me explain what that is. I learned through John Maxwell that um, mm. he's got a wonderful book, The 15 Invaluable Laws of Growth, and that a lot of people think growth just happens to them. Um, you know, you were in this job for a few years, you think you've grown. Well, actually, he, he really explained it said, no, experience happens. That's a lot different than growth. Growth is intentional. And he really taught me the importance through his book of creating a written plan on areas in my life I want to grow in and how. And through that, I do have a personal uh, business coach that I use. I also am a big believer in mentors. I'm very old school here, but I'm a big believer in the whole apprentice idea. And, And I have different mentors in my life that basically really challenge me and, and, and get in my face. <laughs> and, and sometimes, honestly, Lewis, I feel like I'm basically like a little kid who's always in trouble, like going around from day to day, all the people I'm accountable to. But um, that is something that's very important to me. So I try to do things to grow each day through reading. Um, I'm constantly taking classes and workshops, but I'm always just trying to grow myself and be intentional about it and really document what I'm doing and measure what I'm doing. That's not so old school, by the way. Um, most of the, I would say all of the really high achievers today and the, even the, the major thought leaders would agree with exactly what you're saying. And they, the ones I've met, they all have mentors. They, uh, they have coaches for different things, different aspects of their lives. You just made me think of Brendan Burchard, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, have you read his book, High Performance um, Habits? No, I haven't. Should, yeah. I, should I read that one? Oh, man. You know what? The beauty of it is on his podcast right now, the podcast is called uh, The Brendan Show, B-R-E-N-D-O-N. Hey, Brendan, I'm giving you a plug. Uh, he actually put the entire book there as a, a series of, it, it's free. You can listen to the entire thing. In about nine or ten different podcasts, I oh, also wow. I'd also recommend getting the book. I mean, the book is he's achieved something that very few people have have done in that area with the specificity, the science okay. behind it, a and uh, what was that? That's that's not for me. <laughs> no, it's oh my god. Is that your commercial? Can you hear it? Yeah, I can hear it. No. This is funny. You know what you have? A window open. Here's here's what you have. I have many windows open. That's the problem. So you got to close some of those windows. David, thank you so much for being here. Okay. What? Wow. This is weird. (laughs) Check this out. Storytellers and Mike 
it's my cell phone, which is about four feet away from me, sitting on the desk. I'm not touching it. And the moment I mentioned podcast, it began to play a podcast. This is Siri taking things a little too far. You got that, Siri? I didn't ask you to begin playing the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> wow. Yes. Ooh. Ooh. Spooky times. <laughs> <laughs> so... Are there any other thought leaders and mentors who inspire you the most? Oh, by I could go on a long, long rant about this. One that has really been a huge influence this past year or so is Michael Hyatt, hmm. who has the Lead to Win podcast and a wonderful time management system that has changed my life with his, his full focus planner, they, they call it. Um, he has been a real thought leader for me. Another is actually uh, the author, Malcolm Gladwell. And I love Malcolm Gladwell. In fact, uh, and I'm, this is a plug for him, his podcast, uh, Revisionist History, is incredible. Check it out. He's an amazing storyteller. But I actually got to take a writing workshop through masterclass.com with Malcolm Gladwell teaching it. And to, to uh, he, he's a master storyteller, but to to have him break down just how he goes about creating a story was magnificent. Like he taught me um, through through this class a fabulous technique for doing research that I totally forgot about. The technique is to get off the computer and to go to the library and talk to the librarian and. It's so different because it allows you to go down different rabbit holes than you can on Google. And so it's really given me a new perspective on how to craft my articles for the sites that I write for and, and hopefully future books. So Malcolm Gladwell is a big one. Well, thanks for telling me that because I have all access to the master class. Love it. I, uh, you know, I would recommend getting it if you don't because you, you can go into all of the teachers. It doesn't matter. You can take every single class. And it's only a couple of hundred bucks a year. Okay. Um, and the funny thing is, Usher has a class on masterclass.com too that I want to take um, yeah. for, for being a performer. So yeah, no, th th those are some of the influencers. And you know, I, I'm like you. I, I can already say that we have a lot of uh, material in common that we both look to for inspiration. John Maxwell books. But I'm, I'm a big reader. I'm a big believer in the quote. And I don't know who quoted it, but readers are leaders and, and and you know why i'm laughing i've been saying this on my podcast again and again to people <laughs> so by the way guys the story tells i did not tell mike to say that he just he just did man he just did you can tell guys right this is not we're not reading this from a script <laughs> no this is this is not and for the record i was not paid to say that either and the and the thing is you know what i remind people about reading it's like when you read, regardless of what it is, whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction, what I believe happens, and again, this is my opinion, is that the material we read goes into our brain and it allows us to make decisions 
more effectively. We, we get to make decisions more thoroughly about what we decide to talk about, what we decide to do, how we decide to um, deal with a situation. And that's what's really important for people is, is to invest time into that regularly. It's, it, it makes life so much better, I guarantee it. You know, I love that you brought that up because it also does this. You've heard the, again, It's a, I think it's a truth that we become the average of the five people that we hang out with the most. So some people will go, well, that's great because I don't have access to famous people. I don't have access to extremely wealthy people. You do. If you get their audio books, for instance, and you're spending an hour with them, you're hanging out with that person. I'd rather hang out with Brendan Bouchard in the morning to fill my head with empowerment and bring me into my higher self than I would talking to somebody who's going to complain about the nose hairs they can't control or their neighbor's ugly lawn. I, I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, let, let me just say something about that. Thank you for bringing that up because I think for a lot of people, especially the people listening to your show here, who want to improve their lives or do better things in life, you know, when you think of the average of the five people you spend the most time with, basically what that's saying is to take a real inventory of, of who you're spending your time with. And I hate to say it like this, but where they are at in life, what they are doing, what they talk about, what they think about. And I uncomfortably had to make some decisions uh, years ago about this. And let me, let me just say it like this. I didn't cut people out of my life, but I said to myself, I have to love some people more from far away. That, that's what I like to say. It's mm -hmm. love them from far away. And, uh, you know, maybe we used to hang out regularly all the time, but we just reduced that a lot. And I tried to really replace it with people that I felt, now this is very important here, that were out of my league. Mm -hmm. Out of my league. And what was amazing, Lewis, was how it lifted me. To be around people that, um, you know, I'm a big believer if um, I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I actually, I actually, I like to be the stupidest person in the room. Like that really helps me grow. And to do that really takes letting go of your pride, letting go of your ego. But the gold that comes from that is is amazing. So I really encourage people just in general as a mental health thing, going back to connection, think about who you're spending your time with, and just be aware of that. It's very important to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. Because that stuff in your head, you, you got to consider your your mind. Uh, it's uh, it's real estate. And, uh, don't let the wrong tenants occupy that space. You know? Yep. Because <laughs> they ain't going to pay the rent. Matter of fact, they're going to trash the place. <laughs> you know? You got all these deadbeats running around in your brain. <laughs> love it, love it, love it, love it. Yep. <laughs> so what do you say to someone who is trapped in the narrative of, well, my situation's different. It just can't be changed. You know, what do you say to that person? It depends on the person, really. You know, if, if, if the person, you know, I might ask them, um, are you open to another perspective and sometimes when you ask people for permission like that it might be the little doorway that gets you to have that conversation so when someone is is is, is stubborn in, in the sense that you're just like you know i'm stuck where i'm at my situation is different i can't change that's what it is if they're 
really having a conversation with me, I will ask, are you willing to see another perspective? And a lot of times, um, or even how would you feel about seeing it from another perspective? You start asking questions like that, you get to the real root of things. And a lot of times, those conversations end up with the person admitting they don't want to change. Mm-hmm. They don't want to change. Mm-hmm. They just want to keep things the way they are. And we, you and I both know that's a fear-based thing, mm-hmm. you know. But um, I, I think it's important when someone says that or is stuck in that area to learn to ask open-ended questions to help lead them to the answer. Because easily when we get to a, a situation where we want to help somebody, and this is actually for all your listeners out there that want to help someone who's struggling with mental health challenges. Maybe you have a friend or family member. The worst thing you could do is start giving them advice. In fact, I am against if, you know, Lewis, if you, you came to me with a problem, mental health challenge, I'm, I'm really not going to give you advice. I'm going to ask a lot of questions. And the reason is when we give advice, which we love to do in this world, um, which I, I am giving right now because you asked me to be on your show. Just want to put that out there. But the thing is, when we give advice, we make it about us. That's making things about us. And, and it's something I have had to learn the hard way, but learning to validate, to, to look someone in the eye. So t- today, I was fortunate in Missouri here. I got to deliver uh, mental health speeches to two high schools. And uh, at the last presentation, some students wanted to come up and talk with me after. And many of them just told me about their problems. And all I did, Lewis, was just look them in the eyes and, and listen with an open heart. And it led to some nice hugs, some nice thank yous. And that's all it needed to be. I was just there to validate them and say, you are okay and you are great just being you. So I think it's really important to keep that in mind when you're working with someone who's in that space. Sorry for that long answer. No, no, no. I, lo- <laughs> I love it because it's it's so true. You talk about learning it the hard way. I had to learn it in my relationships with women because cool. I- I'll never forget with a girlfriend I had years ago, she's still a very good friend. But she would come to me with a problem, and I immediately would offer her a solution. She would immediately get angry, and I would immediately think, she's nuts. I'm helping her, and she's angry. But it took me a long time to realize that what she was saying is, I'm not coming to you to be fixed. I'm coming to you to have you listen. Just listen. But I wasn't listening. I was talking. That's why it took me a long time. I had to look in the mirror one day and go, oh, my God, I have two ears and one mouth. Imagine that. It's amazing, right? It's, no, it's, it's amazing. And thank you for reminding me about that. I appreciate it very much. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is something I'm uh, excited to ask you uh, because we're now in mid-November. So this is timely. The holiday season can trigger powerful impulses to commit suicide. What would you say, what advice do you have for people to protect themselves from those impulses? Because they're going to happen to a lot of people. Thank you for sharing that with me. I didn't know about that statistic, but it makes sense. Um, And again, I'm going to speak as a non-professional, just a person with Lots of lived experience. First of all, for me, family. You know, for many of us who struggle with mental health challenges, as I said to you before, mental health challenges and people challenges go hand in hand. And for the holidays, I mean, that just brings up family stuff. And it brings up loneliness issues. It brings up all sorts of money issues, all sorts of things. So one thing that I am doing for myself that I encourage other people to consider, 
is really being extra intentional about self-care. Case in point, I've got Thanksgiving plans next week. We're recording this right before Thanksgiving. And I'm going to be for three days in, in Minnesota. And yes, I'm going to enjoy my time with family, but I have carved out most of the time for myself. So I can be there um, in doses and I'm nurturing myself to keep myself in the best space emotionally. So what I really encourage people to do is remember that the holidays bring money stress, people stress, family stress, loneliness issues, and a whole bunch of other things. And what we want to do is be intentional about caring for ourselves so we can withstand all those things coming at us. That's great. It's wonderful advice. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, because all that stuff that we we might feel or a person might feel all of a sudden in the holidays, there's stories, there are narratives that are being triggered by what they see around them. And I would say, I would add to that, don't look around and assume that everyone who is going into a store, smiling and laughing and buying gifts is happier than you. Every, everybody's struggling with some kind of nonsense. It's the deal. It's the deal. It, it is, and, and thank you for that reminder, too. Yes, everyone loves to put on a smiley face like they have it all together and life is good, but no, you're right. A lot of people are struggling, and one other thing I want to say is that if we are intentional about taking care of ourselves during this time, we can also be more emotionally available to others who might be struggling, mm-hmm. which is really good for everybody. Absolutely. Mike, what is your favorite book? And you can only give me one. I know you've got thousands, but one. (laughs) I'm just going to go with the one that came to my mind, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Stephen R. Covey. Covey, yeah. Yeah. The Seven Habits. Beautiful. I I have read it so many times, and I actually started reading it when I was 18. And and that book, um, number one, I think at one point around the late 90s, I don't know if it was for a week or a month, but it was like the first book to outsell the Bible. Wow. On like the, you know, the New York Times, one, one of those reading lists. Wow. And it, it it had such an impact on me because it really gave me a framework for how to move forward with everything else. Mm. And I still go back to that book now, and every time I, I, I read or listen to it, I'm just... Frustrated, <laughs> but I'm also empowered because of the simplicity of it. Beautiful. How about a favorite quote? Okay, I think this is. I think this is Guy Lombardo. I, I'm going to mess this up. The quality of a person's life is in direct proportion to their commitment to excellence, regardless of their chosen field of endeavor. Mm, I like that. That one, um, that one stayed on my wall for many years. What's that sound? That's a sound, that's a sound on my end in, in my hotel here in Missouri. I, I think it's a giant truck. That's, um, and <laughs> it's some engine work. What's scary is that giant truck sounds like it's above you. <laughs> oh, really? Or actually, no, it's probably in the parking lot. It might be someone starting their car or something. Uh, so. If you could wave a magic wand. And change just one thing in the world, only one, what would it be? It would be giving people the ability, even just for 
a half an hour to look into another person's eyes and just see their humanity. Wow, I love that. And personally, I believe that that one thing would be a catalyst for so many other things that need to get fixed in this world. Mm -hmm. And so many people just haven't even had a moment to ever do that. I love it. You know, that's in line with... uh... Um, I'm studying now with, with Peter Diamandis, and uh, uh, if you haven't read Bold, that's the next one on your list. How to Go Big, Create Wealth, and Impact the World by Peter Diamandis and Stephen Cudler. But uh, he talks about deciding what your MTP is, your massively transformative purpose. And it should be something huge that you may never in a lifetime accomplish. And... Uh, Mine is in alignment with what you said, that it's to create a borderless world by raising the global conversation around who we are through the power of storytelling. Mm, I love it. You know, how can people contact you, my friend? You can contact me through my website, uh, com. Again, that's www.mikevini.com and the way you spell my last name is V like in Victor E as in everything N as in nothing Y as in yes I love that <laughs> mikevini.com Mike everything and nothing and yes <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me just a a really short answer on where you see yourself in five years. Give me, give, give me the Twitter. Give me the Twitter answer. Leveraging my, I'm going to use your MTP, mm-hmm. massively transformative purpose to help others at a really large scale. Beautiful. Any final thoughts for our storytellers today? Well, no, uh, thank you so much for having me on your show, and thank you to your listeners. And, Lewis, I just want to tell you, you are an amazing interviewer. You made me just feel so comfortable, and it was so easy, and just thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you, my friend. You know, uh, a lot of suggestions come across my uh, desk for who I should have on the show, and when I saw your profile, it, it, it took me about 15 seconds to decide. Oh, wow, okay. I said, yeah, yeah, this guy's got to be on. His whole message and what he's passionate about is in total alignment with the theme of my show because he's changed his story and he's changed his life. Thank you again for being here. And thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Mike Vini. I don't know where to begin. I am so grateful for Mike's uh, presence, for who he is, and for how much he gives. I know that a lot of you are feeling this too. Definitely pay this forward. Share this with other people. You'll be giving them a gift. Let them know that they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website, changeyourstorypodcast.com and on that website I've created a gift for you that can give you greater clarity, confidence and power as a communicator. It's an ebook called 
storytelling secrets for a rich life and business. Go to the site, download the book, and grow. So many incredible gems that Mike just generously gave to us today. And I'm so glad that spontaneously the theme about readers being leaders came up. You guys have no excuses now. If you don't read, you're cheating yourself. You're not allowing yourself to take a wonderful gift that's being offered to you by the world. A gift that will empower you beyond your wildest dreams. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. Choose any audiobook that excites you, that appeals to you. Choose from more than 180,000 titles. The book is yours, absolutely free, and you'll get to enjoy all of Audible service for free for an entire month. Don't let procrastination stop you, and don't tell yourself, you know what, I'll get to it someday, because someday is never. What to think about for next week? Wow. Again, where do we start? At the beginning, I opened with Les Brown's quote, don't ever let someone else's opinion of you become your opinion of yourself. And this was a dominant theme in my discussion today with Mike. I'm sure that there's something, because there's something in everybody. You know, I work on myself a lot, and I have a I pride myself on having a, a fairly high self-awareness, and yet there are so many things that I allow into my mental real estate that are not good for me, that, you know, there are other people's opinions that make me feel less than I should feel. So look at yourself, and when you find that there's something that is not serving you, that is putting you down, that is making you feel inferior. Stop it. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you how you can do this and get a good laugh at the same time. Go on to YouTube and look for Bob Newhart's comedy skit. Just put down Bob Newhart, stop it. And when you watch that, You'll not only laugh, you'll realize, hey, why am I giving myself so much grief? I'm going to just stop it. Guys, this is always an amazing trip for me. The reason I do this podcast is to give you something special, and I do it for myself because... When I'm in the presence of and I'm discovering beautiful human beings like Mike Vini, my world expands, I grow, I feel more connected, more empowered, and that's what I wish for you. Because every single one of us has a light that deserves to shine. 
inside of us. Let your life shine. And if you need some help, begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.